Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Yo, next round is about to start. You ready? Yeah, yeah, just shopping for a car in Carvana. For real? Yeah, Carvana makes it super convenient to shop whenever, wherever. For real? That's a ton of car options. Yep, and these are all within my price range. For really real? You can afford that? Yeah, with Carvana. And boom, just like that, I'm getting it delivered in a couple days. For really, really real? You just bought a car. For real, and you just lost my turn. Visit Carvana.com to shop for thousands of vehicles under $20,000. Well, hopefully we've learned that infectious diseases can strike any time, although many immune systems can fight diseases off. There are deadly diseases that infants, small children, adolescents, and even adults cannot handle. In fact, as many as 50,000 adults die from vaccine-preventable diseases every year. August is Immunization Awareness Month, time to learn about diseases like cervical cancer, hepatitis B, and meningococcal disease, all preventable by vaccine. Talk with your physician about these types of diseases and get your family up to date on their vaccines. For more, visit womenincovernment.org. Betty, welcome to Doctor Who Podcast. Uh, as Adam would say, you got to get it on, uh, and please do support people that support these pods. Uh, we can keep this thing going that way. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy it. If you have, uh, you know, if you want to uh, suggest topics, uh, go over to doctor.com, the contact list, sign up, and uh, send me your suggestions. And don't forget, after dark and all the other good stuff, we're streaming at doctor.com on a regular basis. So uh, we need to see the Corolla world over there too, and we appreciate it. Right now, it's my privilege to welcome Lori Paul. She's a professor of philosophy and cognitive science at Yale University. Her book is Transformative Experience. Um, you, know, you guys all know that I'm a Sean Carroll fan, and she was on episode 85 of Mindscape. And uh, PhD from Princeton. And uh, I will ask you, Lori, to talk about how you got into this field. And welcome. Ah, well, hi. It's nice to be here. Um, it's kind of an odd story because uh, somehow when I was finishing up high school, I thought, what am I going to do with my life? And I thought, I want to be a philosopher. Now, I'd never taken a philosophy class. So I went off to college and I thought about taking a philosophy class. I started a philosophy class. I did incredibly badly. So uh <laughs> I dropped out before I failed. Philosophy um, at Princeton was hard. I'm shocked. Uh, no, that was my grad. That was my PhD. Oh, Antioch. Uh, was, yeah. yeah, Antioch. Um, it just it wasn't it wasn't for me. Um, and so I sort of noodled around. And ended up uh, getting uh, an undergraduate degree in chemistry. Uh, but then I thought, okay, maybe I'll go to med school because I guess philosophy isn't for me. But I still thought it was an incredibly dreamy, cool thing to do. So I go, I take uh, the MCAT, and I start interviewing at various med schools and I get an interview at Harvard. So I go on my interview to Harvard, which didn't actually go especially well, but as I'm, I'm sitting there wandering around the campus, uh, I, I was wandering on the campus and I, I went over and had lunch in a little restaurant and looked across at Harvard Square and I thought, I really want to be here, but not for medicine. Yeah. I want to I do philosophy. So and, and I, let, me, let me pick your brain, but when you say yeah. I want to do philosophy, I mean, it's a pretty broad topic. Was there something specific you were interested in? I mean, I didn't know, even know anything about philosophy. So it was, I don't understand where I got this you idea. You want to be a great thinker. You just want to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 it was incoherent. Well, okay. Actually, I, I wanted you know, to. You mean, I, you mean 19 year old, 20 year old was incoherent? Shocking. Wait a minute. What's I, know, I, know, I, know. I think they know everything. And I didn't know anything. Yeah. It, was, it was more that I wanted to think about the nature of experience in the self. Actually, I wouldn't 
I don't think I would have described it quite that way then, but in fact, the work that I'm doing now is really what I wanted to do, even that I wanted to do it all my life. Uh, so I dropped everything. I went to India and studied uh, Buddhist philosophy and meditation for a little while. Um, and then sitting in a cell in, 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 the, in a monastery, I realized, no, I don't want to do Buddhist philosophy. I want to do what's called analytic philosophy. And uh, jumping a few steps later, I ended up going to grad school at Princeton and doing my PhD in metaphysics. So there you go. In, in PhD? Meta in metaphysics. Well, it's in philosophy, but yes, metaphysics in particular. And so tell us what analytic philosophy is. Okay. Well, this is a contested everything in philosophy is contested but very roughly um the kind of philosophy i do was dominant in england and other parts of uh the english-speaking world and part of what defines this kind of philosophy is 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 its methodology like we try to be precise and clear and uh, explore things and explicate ideas in an especially precise way and then we think about certain kinds of topics as well but it's the method more than anything else sometimes it gets kind of boring and analytical and dry i try to avoid that but it's uh also very like, precise is this like hume or is this the positivist mm. well i think we'd i think that analytic philosophers so-called analytic philosophers would count the positivists and Hume as some of our antecedents. Yeah. But Kant and Descartes, you know, are also figures that we study. It's more, you know, I do a lot of philosophy of mind and I do metaphysics. I analyze like the nature of time and how we experience uh, uh, the nature of time and causation. I teach well, a class gonna, at Yale called the paradoxes of time travel. You know, that kind of stuff. We are going to pull off the road and talk about time right here, if you don't mind. Uh, start start us out. I mean, I, 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 you know, your friend Sean Carroll. I chatted with him at length about the the nature of time and the arrow of time and biological time and vector time and in time in Hilbert space. <laughs> and these are all these different temporalities. And and then I struggled with it myself. Um, I think Heidegger for me helped me kind of a bit because he talked about you know ex ex ecstasies on horizons that open themselves to you that have a sequential quality, but it's sort of an opening of something where something can happen. Is is that your notion of time or? Um, well, so one thing I want to do is I'm really interested in the relationship between like objective time, like the stuff that Sean is interested in, but also temporal experience, how we experience time. Now, Sean's interested in that too, because there's this question about like, what's the direction of time? Is there an arrow? And what's the relationship between entropy and objective time? And then what's the relationship between that and how we experience time? All of those questions are questions that I'm super interested in. Um, I tend to explore them more in relationship to the self and consciousness and decision-making and how we, the flow of time, whereas, you know, physicists will explore questions in thermodynamics or, yeah. you know, nature of space time, things like yeah. that. Yes. And so, so, so it's experiential temporality. Is that a better way to describe it? Yeah. Like, yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. And, and so, and so what is the nature of that? Is that just something your brain does or is there something else going on? That's a good question. I don't know the answer, but I do <laughs> but I do suspect that some of it is really yes, yeah, something that your brain does. And so there's you know, there's a way that we experience time, temporal experience, and that's a feature of kind of consciousness and something that your brain does. But if we're lucky, we hook on to, you know, mind independent time. And we're successful um, in that hooking on. I mean, that's how, you know, maybe we can influence the world and 
interact with each other causally and things like that. So, in, in, but I think, you know, anybody you did, you did meditation and anybody has been in deep therapy or hypnosis or anything knows that your brain can expand and contract time too, experientially. Mm-hmm. Is that, does that fit into all this or is that just something again, your brain does? Oh, no. Well, I think um, your brain, that's right. So there are ways we experience the duration of time in your brain. I mean, I think it has a lot to do with um, the processes in your brain and we can talk about that with like the neural level, but also the computational level and the level of consciousness. Um, and and okay, I'm going I'm to keep going off the road to consciousness. So we seem to go keep hitting up against it. So let's just stop there for a second. I, I know that's the hard problem, or if you look at it that way, I don't know. Um, where are you in consciousness? Well, I say the, the stuff that I'm interested in is a little bit, it's a, it's a, it is a bit off the road. In other words, a lot of philosophers of mind um, and philosophers more generally who are interested in consciousness are interested in the hard problem. Like, you know, like Dave Chalmers and, um, you know, many other people who have studied this, but I'm actually really interested in just in what you might call phenomenology, like how we experience the world, you know? So, I mean, I think Heidegger's work is really interesting. It's not what I study, but um, the methodology is different, but some of the questions that so-called continental philosophers have been interested in are things that I think are fascinating. So you can see in, in a way, I think part of my life's project is to try to explore the kinds of questions that so-called continental philosophers thought were important, being self time, the relationship to the world, but to explore them as an analytic philosopher, as a, as a philosopher doing the, doing philosophy the way that I was trained and the way that I like it, and also with an empirical component. So that cognitive science part for me is, is really important. I collaborate with a lot of psychologists at Yale and elsewhere, and um, I'm hoping to really bring, you know, um, empirical work into contact with the nature of experience and how we understand ourselves and to really get back to some of these kinds of big philosophical questions, but from like this, a different angle. Are you working on anything specific right now? Well, so the work that I have, that I was, I was talking to Sean about, about transformative experience is part of this project. And that's about like big life experiences that change who we are and understanding ourselves as we're stretched out through time. Um, and I'm working on another book about that. And I'm also working on, a different project that brings together metaphysics and cognitive science. So just some things we're talking about, like the structure of temporal experience and how we understand ourselves causally. But that's, I'm, but that's a longer term project that will involve collaborative work with many people. And in terms of the phenomenologist, is there one in particular that you're sort of closest to? Or you? I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I've, always appreciated um like i said heidegger and um i've like the i don't know if kierkegaard kierkegaard probably shouldn't be called a phenomenologist but like the work of kierkegaard is really interesting um you know sartre and other thinkers were very merleau-ponty all of these people i think have done interesting and important work but i'm really kind of going my own way that's maybe the right way to put it okay um I'm trying to remember the name of the Heidegger's teacher. I'm blanking on it because it sounds Husserl. like, what is it? Husserl. Husserl. Yeah. Husserl. Yes. Is that sort of the zone you're in? Like really parsing it yeah. all out? Yes. Yes. Um, in fact, I think Husserl is, is, is an excellent example of someone who's both, who's influenced both again, so-called analytic and continental philosophers. And uh, he also did important work on how we understand time. 
So yeah. yeah, he's a good kind of. And he he seemed always seemed like a kind of a science philosophy mix a little bit. Yes. He was trying to have a scientific philosophy. It seemed like. Absolutely. So let's go to transformative experiences. How, how did you get into that, interested in that, and, and what do we need to know about that? Well, okay. So um, I'd been – there's a way in which – okay, you, you asked how I got into philosophy. How yeah. did I get into this yeah. project? There's yeah. this – I feel like – I don't know. The way that my mind works, which is a mystery to me, it seems like I have a kind of an idea that I don't even know it's an idea. and I just think about it and think about it, but I don't even realize what's going on or – I don't know. So I'd been thinking about – transformative experience for a long time but couldn't articulate the idea i just i knew and i was interested in like i was interested in consciousness i always loved tom uh, i always loved these examples like what it would like to be a bat or frank jackson has this story about mary who grows up in a black and white environment and then sees red for the i thought these were amazing examples but i also like didn't really care about the way that other philosophers explored them like i i I just wasn't that interested in the hard problem of consciousness, which is what these examples usually are are, um, about. And I was confused by that. Okay. Then um, I had my first child. And I remember sitting um, uh, about a few months after she was born, and I actually got enough sleep to have my, my brain to start working again. I remember sitting... Uh, in, like in a mall, I was I was living in Australia at the time, uh, nursing her, and like just kind of you know sitting there reflecting on philosophical questions. So I was like, this was this incredibly bizarre, amazing experience, and nobody writes about it. Like philosophy is supposed to be about some of the the big issues in you know life and experience and what's important to us, and no philosopher that I'd ever read had ever written about having a baby becoming a parent now there are yeah crazy now there are probably some rather you know maybe obvious uh, explanations for this i mean there were right men. <laughs> exactly and it's not that men can't experience this but i think it's incredibly it's it's just much more dramatic and very sort of in your face when you grow this thing inside you and then have to produce it and you know it's just such a physical thing you really cannot just like you can't dissociate from it so i thought okay and then I thought about it some more. And then, um, and then I went to uh, a few months later. I went to a, a workshop on philosophy of mind, and I was sitting around a table with a bunch of other philosophers, and we were drinking wine. And someone across the table said, "Oh, I was thinking about maybe I would want to have a, a baby." And I was, and I said, "Oh, you can't make a rational decision about that. It's you have no idea what you're in for. You can't think that far ahead of time in a clear way. Just." flip a coin or decide to do it, but don't think you do anything irrational. And then there was like, we spent six hours arguing, like all the whole bunch of us around the table. And it was just so much fun. And I sort of developed a line, like, because obviously I was challenged by the, with the making that uh, contentious statement. And okay. So then I go back, go to bed. I wake up in the morning uh, and I like sat up in bed. like, oh, that's it. That's the example that puts together the structure of the idea for me, which is that, there are certain big life experiences um, that many of that, that we face. Not everyone faces them, but um, there's. But when you face an experience that's of a new kind, like a, 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 a kind of a dramatically new kind, um, um, it's like when Mary has never seen color, like and leaves her black and white room for the first time. You discover something new. Okay. Now, small experiences can be like that too, and I have an example in my in my book where I talk about I, trying I, durian. I would argue I'm not sure Mary's the right example because the one thing when I've heard you talk about this was you're transformed, 
So you're actually, you are a different person looking at it from a different place. Yeah. Not just Mary seeing green for the first time. Mary is Mary on whatever, Mary squared or Mary two or whatever, Mary as an adult, whatever it might be. And that's a, that's a different thing. It's a different place. Okay. Remind me to talk about psychedelics. Okay. Second. Um, uh, so, so second. So, but this is, okay. So here's, let me say a little bit more about the transformative experience thing, because there's two, there's a couple of moving parts. First moving part is it's, you discover something new that you couldn't have known until you were actually in the experience. That's the connection to Mary. But then the other part that you're picking up on is that's more the ordinary notion of transformative, uh, of something being transformed. It also changes who you are. So you can but, have a new, but, oh, okay. but, so, the part, but the part that I, this is the part that I think people miss though. Uh, it, it, they, yeah, sure you were changed, but, but I think about this in the setting of, of treatment and mental illness and psychotherapy and things like that. And having been a patient and also been in, in it with other people as, as a practitioner, they think that, and even I as a patient thought of this, that it's just evolving some insight or, or, or ideas or way of doing things as opposed to, oh, no, no, I'm in a, I'm literally, I'm me, but I'm over here. And I'm looking at the world from a different place now. Not yeah. because I thought something different, because I have been changed by, yeah. by, uh, by enough yeah. of these experiences yeah. in therapy. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and that's the part, no, people always think, well, just tell me what to do, or what do I need to know? It's like, no, 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 no. You need to change. And when that's you right. change, you will, and this is the part that's kind of interesting, and maybe you'll have something to say about it, you will feel differently about everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, but the part, what you're saying about how people kind of don't get it yeah, uh, is like, that's, so I'm going to go back to Mary, because yeah. the thing is, if you, if you're blind, you, you grow up blind, and then you have the chance to have a retina operation where you gain sight, okay, you can know a lot of things will be different. But until you actually have the experience of, of seeing the world, you're not, there's a whole bunch of stuff you're not going to know. And I think of the, I talk, describe this as kind of, there's an epistemic wall that you face before the operation and afterwards. Okay. So that, you one of those patients? You should, you should talk more. You should, uh, yeah. That have had yeah. That, uh, there's a, kid, a guy that had uh, acid in his eyes or something when he was six months old and he became a competitive blind skier and all these things. And then he got sighted again. And man, has he got some interesting stories. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. So I would like to follow up on that. I, yeah, I've read a number of testimonials and uh, talked with. Yeah, I've done some work on this, but I would love to find out about yeah. uh, this guy's story. So, so, but the the point is that it's not something you can know about until you have the experience. People can tell you, but you don't get it. And then by having that experience, this doesn't happen to Mary, but it does happen. I think when you become a parent, you change in a really deep way. So who you are changes. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have the same driver's license or whatever. There's a sense in which you're the same person and there's another sense in which you're not. Mm-hmm. And so a transformative experience for me has both of those parts though. It's that you have this, like, dis- you have this new kind of experience. And in virtue of having that new kind of experience, it changes who you are. So you cross this divide. And I think that's like, those are, there, there are these experiences that they're super interesting. And part of the idea is to be, precise about this and to explore the characteristics of this and then in my book 
this isn't, uh, I also actually apply this to decision-making because I think there are interesting, lots of interesting implications. And one of the interesting implications is, look, if, if you're contemplating like being, like becoming a, you know, a parent, let's say you don't want to be a parent. I talked to Sean about this, but uh, you know that you'll be glad you did it if you do it, right? Yeah. Well, does, I mean, the, 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 the point is that like there's, it's an open question about whether you really should do it or whether what you're doing is a kind of involving a kind of mind control, right? Or corruption or change in who you are. Because if you don't want to have, if you don't want to have a child, then just because later on you'll be happy you did it. It's not clear that that's, that that's a reason to do it. Yeah, well, a lot of people are, a lot of people are unhappy. Well, they are, but even if they're happy, it's not clear that who they are once they become the happy person is the same as who they were when they made the decision. And when you make a decision, if you're going to do something, you should do it because you want to do it right there. Not because, you know, by having a brain operation, let's say, or by someone knocking you on the head or having massive changes because of that little person that you create, um, you become someone who's happy that they did it. That's a different kind of question. And, and the, the, I think you have the vampire metaphor. I do. So my favorite example, which I opened my book with, is um, the I, you know I uh, you know you, you you one day Dracula comes to you and he gives you this amazing opportunity, right? And he says, "I'm going to give you this one time only chance to become a vampire." And um, it's ethical because we tell the story where, you know, you can drink artificial blood, so we don't have to worry about the moral dimension of things. But that's, the, you know, like if, if, like that's the kind of change that we can imagine anyway involves both an entirely new kind of experience and also changes who you are. And you might think, what, do I really want to become a vampire? Like there's a way in which I'll lose who I am. But everybody who's become a vampire thinks it's fabulous. So then you have this choice. Do you lose who you are to become this amazing new thing who's going to be happy? Or do you pass up that chance? It's interesting. And in a way, it's a little bit of a corollary to the brain in the vat uh, thought experiment, uh, which I've always challenged my patients with, which is, you know, would you sign up if I had infinity powers and I could make you a brain in a vat and as a brain in the vat, you would not know you're the brain in the vat you would have the perfect life experience. You have infinite happiness. And would, even if you needed unhappiness, I have infinite power so I can anticipate everything. Would you sign up to be the brain of the bat? Right. A lot of people will not. And, and I, I thought it was, my own theory on it was that the, one of the motivator, the, the, the blocks you might feel is, well, as a brain in the vat, you don't exist. So to your family and to your loved ones and to, you know, being in the world and making a difference, you don't get to do, you, you think you're doing it. You'll have the same experience, but you won't actually do it. And I, I had a feeling that that was one of the reasons people held back. But I think the vampire issue is just as big because it's literally letting go of who you are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And by the way, it explains why people don't change very well in therapy. You know what I mean? It, it, oh, yeah. it, they, they really, they resist yeah. change, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, I think, um, you know, it's like, let's say you're depressed and the drugs or, you know, maybe you're bipolar and you have to take certain kinds of drugs to kind of moderate that, but you, it also changes who you are. Um, there's a real, there's, there's this, it's there, there, I think there's a significant and difficult choice that people have to make in that kind of 
of context. And, and so how do you look at it philosophically? I mean, I, I, I can see sort of a, you know, folk approach to that, but how, what's the, what's the careful analysis you would do of that? Okay. Oh, by the way, can I just mention one more thing? Yeah. It's, it's one thing to ask people if they want to become a brain in the vat. It's another thing if you say, Hey, um, right now you're a brain in a vat and I'm going to take you out of that. And you're going to experience a whole like different reality. Do you want to do it? And I bet a lot of people would also not want to do that either. So that's just speaking to what you're saying about change, that's different, right? different motivations. Yeah. 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 So, so it's not so much about rejecting being a brain in the vat, I think is like endorsing the state that you're in. That's Reject, kind of yeah, reject, yeah. We, we just, and, and I, to me, that seems like a brain thing. We just naturally re- resist, resist change. Just the way we resist insults to our body. We result, we resist insults to our beingness in the moment. There, there's a kind of rationality to it too. And I haven't forgotten your other question. There's a kind of rationality to it too, which is that if, if you have, if you prefer, like, it's rational to act in accordance with the preferences that you have, with what you care about, right? And so there's a way in which it, you know, you, you might not want to change your preferences because if you like the preferences that you have, if you endorse them, then it's not rational to reject them. So it's not rational to become a different self. So sometimes it's just, you know, being kind of risk averse or not liking change, but sometimes there's another kind of argument. I think it can be, uh, you know, it's very justifiable. I think, I, think, I think that's absolutely true, especially when it's attached to some value, not just liking, but something that's valued and that has a little bit of a different uh, connotation to it. That's right. That's right. So to go to the thing about being um, precise. So, so one, so one thing I do is um, when I say, when I, I talk about how, look, we can, make sense of different kinds of experiences. We can make sense of how when the brain um, or when we ex- come across a new kind of experience, like a new kind of color or a new sense modality um, or um, a, you know, a dramatically new world event, hello pandemic, right? Um, or a radically new kind of technological uh, invention, any kind of new, really new kind of thing, um, we make a discovery. And so it's important, like philosophically, to be very clear about these different kinds of things. And this is also why I think psychedelics are interesting, because there's a, it's a, like, if you, like, psychedelic experience is also arguably a new kind of experience. And um, having a sort of framework to understand um, what, like, how we should think about that, and then what some of the implications are of that, I think, really both helps us to maybe formulate more precise um, hypotheses as well as just to kind of understand things more carefully. So anyway, so I talk about um, the epistemic revelation that comes with the discovery of a new kind of experience. And then the thought is, well, to be, to continue uh, to try to be precise about transformative experience, the idea is that, well, when you have this new kind of experience, it involves a change, like an expansion in what you know and understand, uh, as I would put it, you have a value function that becomes defined. And in virtue of that, that, um, that profound expansion of your cognitive capacities, you shift the way that you make sense of the world. And that's the shift in self. So the first thought is that we can be fairly precise about what it means to have a transformative experience. And then when I go on to apply it to things like uh, rational decision-making, you know, I talk about how, look, 
at least very roughly in the ordinary picture when we think about making a rational choice, if you act, you want to act so you can maximize your expected value. But if for principled reasons, um, you maybe can't assign value to the new experience because you don't know what it's like, um, or you're considering doing something that's going to change your preferences, like in the way that we talked about earlier, making you into a new kind of self. Right, the vampire. The vampire. Then there's a way in which the ordinary calculus for deciding what to do just doesn't apply. Right. What do you do with that? That, that to well, me, is a really interesting question in this. So that is, um, I, uh, I don't know. What, I mean, I have some views about what to do, but the first point is to bring out how this really is a problem. Um, and the second, the second question is, well, so one thing is, well, maybe you can have some kind of higher order approach. Like if you had consistent values, like um, it's always good to become a parent or it's always good to become a vampire. That's not going to help us, I think, in these cases, but that would officially be, you know, a way out. You could make a decision along uh, another basis. For me, I'm not very good at giving you answers, by the way. I'm good at asking questions. Just no, so you know. good. I'm awesome. <laughs> good. Yeah, questions too, but I love the answers. <laughs> um, but, I mean, I'm quite interested in, for example, like this case of, um, of someone becoming a parent, you know, when someone becomes a parent and they're unhappy with their choice. Um, and someone else says, well, you should have known. And I think, well, no, I don't think that's fair. It's not that someone shouldn't take responsibility for their choice to become a parent, but I don't think they should blame themselves if they couldn't accurately kind of project themselves into, you know, what it was going to be like to be a brain in a vat or a parent in a vat or whatever, you know, this new kind of experience. Um, And I also think there are other cases where thinking about this can be very interesting and important, like with the example with the um, blind skier Hmm. right um i think that those like making the decision to have that kind of change in his life i think was probably quite fraught i would guess Mm -hmm. and um it's quite a difficult decision it's not that it's it's not obviously right for example for him to want to that's correct and that that's the kind of for the average person i think that's surprising Exactly. Exactly. Um, And understanding uh, what's going on there. And also uh, not just saying, oh, well, there must be cognitive dissonance or uh, this person must be confused in some sense. I think that's really, uh, it's it's patronizing and it's wrong. And and I think these questions about uh, disability and uh, mental change um, need to be understood more clearly both for reasons of kind of epistemic justice and also I think for lots of you know interesting kind of psychological and empirical reasons as well. So I, I will tell you that he um, he has a bunch of stories, but he had trouble using visual sensory information to make sense of the world and the landscape in which he was viewing. For instance, he couldn't ski. He was a championship-blinded skier. He couldn't, it screwed him up completely. He couldn't ski. He has a story of being in a Costco. And this, 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 I, I, this is an awful example, but I bring it only because it shows how confused he was about the sensory information and how he, where he put it in his thinking. I don't know how else to say it except that. He, he was waving his wife out of the way. He was in a Costco, uh, big, you know, big lot container store. There was a the forklift was coming and she was like, what, what are you talking about? Get, get out of the way of that forklift. It was just a large woman, but it large body, large thing coming toward 
became forklift in his head. He was in a box store. He knew what they, maybe he heard something. And so he couldn't process what he was visually, it's so interesting, receiving. Uh, And it did change him, uh, but he wasn't super happy about it. Right. I think this is, that is my, my understanding is, especially for adults uh, who, you know, someone grew up blind and then they get something like ordinary vision. um, They just, they often are not happy with. with Yeah. They can't use it. It it, it interferes with the senses that they've been using and their understanding of the world. And it's not like they go, Oh, I never knew it was like a forklift. It's just, it's just, information it just happens to be visual and they were using lots of other things to assess the same input yep Yep. yes exactly and um you know i think understanding that there can be this kind of shift is really important um and again partly for um distinguishing between responsibility and praise and blame and partly for when we have to make decisions for others so you know this kind of thing comes up with cochlear implants and infants that you know whether or not um, the child should have the implants and i think it's a complicated and difficult decision it's not well, obvious what the right yeah and it is, is certainly right that this is the domain for philosophy this is where you know us in medicine become philosophical because it's not yes. a scientific thing and it, it occurs to me also in another area where philosophy could be of use or helping somebody be a new person is traumatic brain injury you ever yes. think about that? Yes, um, traumatic brain injury and also dementia, basically, mm-hmm. an end of life. So, um, a couple of things. So, one has to do with advanced directives and consent. Um, I think that we need to have a better understanding of how one self, maybe the self making the advanced directive. Um, so, so let me, let me give me own personal example of this. So I've been, I've been screaming lately. I've been, I don't want to be in a nursing home. If I get so debilitated that I, I have to be moved by two people or I'm so demented that I have to be fed. I, don't feed me. Let me go. Right. And um, this is this self talking. And, and I will sometimes say under my breath, well, you know, uh, who wants to live to 95 uh, is, I don't want to live 95, but, ask a 94 year old, you, you know what I mean? And exactly. Exactly. It's a different perspective than the 60 year old. Uh, and, and that has really multiple layers of philosophical issues attached to it. Yes. Not just the perspectivalism. It's also value stuff. Like I don't want to be a burden by family. I don't want to be a yes. burden to society. I want to be productive. But does that mean that at 94, I necessarily want to check out and should I be held to the 60 year old standard? How do you resolve that? Right. Well, uh, yeah. The one way I would put it is um, what right does your current self have to make decisions for that future self? Yeah. If, if in like, as we've been talking in an important sense, it's, you know, you're, you're not the same person. Right. And, um, and I, I think, yeah, I mean, the way that actually philosophically as a metaphysician, the way that I think of it is that a person who persists, like say from 60 to 90, you're the same person, but you're realized by a series of different selves. And so like there's the self that that you are. So there's the self that you are at 60. And then you can have these gradual changes, you know, 60, 65, 70, 75, et cetera. Um, And, uh, if we define a self in terms of um, your values and kind of conscious perspective and how you think about things, there could be gradual changes such that 
the self that you were at 60 is not the same as the self that you are at 70 or 80. So what's the, what is the person then? The person is the collection of all those cells stretched over time. Have you um, seen Damasio's definition of a self? I don't know his definition of a self. I have. He, he calls it a repeatedly reconstructed biological unit that endows experience with subjectivity. That's not how I put it, but I think that's an excellent. It's an interesting, of, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But but it's but it doesn't take into account these temporal changes. That's right. That's it's right. Just about subjectivity and biology. That's right. But um, that repeated part, I would like interpret that in terms of now, let's say, repeated in the sense of there's the self at this time, at this time, at this time, at this time, and they have to be related, like causally and kind of yes. mentally in, in the right it's way. It's reconstructed biologically, but it's reconstructed. It changes. It just does. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, this feeds into my interest in in time, of course, and because I think of a, you know, I, you can think of a person as a spatial temporal worm or a streak through time. Um, any kind of persisting object can be thought of that way. And then if you chop it up into segments of so each little time, there's a little temporal slice there. And that's going to that's going to correspond to a kind of a very short lived self. That's that's the metaphysics behind this. Um, really interesting. It's super fun. And then when you travel in time, right, if you travel back in time, it can loop back on itself and all kinds of interesting. How's that? Well, so the thought is that um, if you travel back in time, then that you can think of the spatial temporal streak or the worm that 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 you are, right, the series of cells, right, as having um, um, like stages that let's say, okay, so let's say it's you, I built a time machine for you and my Yale undergraduates. And uh, in 2021, because hopefully we won't all be online, then hopefully back in the classroom in a year. Um, right. And uh, you guys all get in the time machine and you go back to like 1950. All right. All right. So my Yale undergraduates, I don't know when they would have been born, probably in 2000. So their yeah. street, <laughs> if yeah. I, maybe like 2001, I don't know. Crazy. You know. Yeah. Um, so their, their, their worm starts, let's say, at 2000 and, I don't know, 2003, right? And they have um, segments at every moment of time up to 2021. But then you get segments doubling, like you get the worm doubles back on itself because there will be segments, let's say, at uh, 2020 and uh, 2001 and all the way back to 1950 because you're in the time machine and they're in the time machine and they persist until they get out of the time machine. So then you get this. See, that's what I mean by that. And and by the way, Sean Carroll is um, an ama- has the best discussions of time travel that I've ever come across in uh, his book uh, From Eternity to Here. Just so you know, Sophie. You just, I just learned of that book. I, I, yeah. I got, this yeah. stuff is amazing. Uh, I, did that inform your thinking on this? No, um, I studied with David Lewis when I uh, at Princeton, who wrote, who did some of the original work on the metaphysics of time travel, and so I took uh, David's course on this and read and studied up on it. But um, I did learn, um, I did learn a bit about the history of science from Sean's work. He just does a beautiful job of discussing the philosophy, and I also learned about the physics through reading some of his stuff. He has a great capacity to explain the physics to to, to anybody. Which is, I, I was surprised that time exists to him. It definitely does. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I thought time was something we injected into physics, but uh, no, it definitely exists. 
this, but this is remember that distinction I was making between temporal perception or temporal experience and yep. the time itself. Yep. I think yep. if we make that distinction, then we can accommodate like a lot of maybe the kinds of intuitions that you want to. No, I think that's what kind of Heidegger was struck, struggling with in book two of uh, being in time. Mm-hmm. So uh, that time became a really important part of being, mm-hmm. which makes sense to me. And, uh, and being this. So what else are you studying these days? What are you teaching? What, what's, what's occupying you? Well, um, so this semester I did my paradoxes of time travel class, which I was just enthusing uh, with you about. Um, although when everything uh, shut down and we had this sort of um, kind of collapse of, of in-person um, teaching, I converted part of the class I was really, I've just in general been interested in science fiction. And so um, I, I had us read like some Borges and some other, um, and uh, Cortazar's Axel Oto, like interesting, interesting um, stories of uh, basically in science fiction that explored themes in metaphysics. So the nature of time, uh, the nature of the self, how we think about possibility and choices that we make. Um, so I've been doing that. And it was actually, it was pretty intense because. I was running a class that then suddenly had to be converted along. This is what all of us experienced. And um, I had to kind of think about what, what should we, how should we think now when we're in this situation, how am I going to teach them and let them learn uh, in this context? And so the thought was to explore very basic tropes of human existence that connected to the metaphysics. And so that's what we did. Um, it was really very interesting. Uh, and then I taught a graduate seminar with Brian Scholl, who's a vision scientist and cognitive scientist on uh, metaphysics meets cognitive science. And we did work on causation and causal perception and time and the self and uh, other kinds of interesting puzzles, thinking about backwards causation. That, that's, basically, you know, that's basically what I do is I just sort of talk about all this stuff and think about all this stuff all the time. <laughs> So fun. It, it, I don't. I do. You do other stuff in cognitive sciences, other, other than sort of philosophical questions. Um, so much, I so much uh, about cognitive distortions these days. I'm wondering if you ah. get into that whole zone. No, I mean basically what my role is is I just kind of think about all these sort of philosophical questions, and then psychologists who really know what they're doing with the ex- on the experimental and methodological side, um, you know collaborate with me to explore various sorts of things. Usually I'm the blue sky thinker. They're kind of blue sky thinkers too, but I'm just kind of over here dreaming. And I say, well, what about this? We talk about this. And then we talk about something interesting and then they kind of develop an experiment. And, and sometimes oh, that's cool. Of it. <laughs> how, how do you find the students these days? I mean, there's a lot of sort of, um, again, discussion about millennials and about young people. And oh my gosh, uh, how do you find your students? I, well, I love my, like my Yale students. I, find them to be incredibly interesting. How long have you been teaching them? How long well, I taught, so this is my second year teaching at Yale now, but my first job was at Yale. So in fact, I've been, I taught for two years at Yale when I first came out of grad school at Princeton. Um, and then I moved because for personal reasons, um, got married and had kids, but then uh, now I'm divorced and I'm back at Yale. And, another transformative experience. Yeah, and there's one of those like, yeah, very much so. And, yeah. um, and kind of, you know, another like uh, thing looping back. So so, um, so I have about four years of experience teaching the Yale students. And um, they're, I think they're just extremely interesting and talented and creative. And I really respond to that. The graduate students are also, uh, you know, incredibly interesting and i get to talk to psychology grad students as well so i really 
I, I really enjoy it. Um, and, there, and many of the students are doing, they have, they all have their own distinctive kind of, you know, take on things and they've all done really interesting projects before they came to Yale. So that, that, that comes out. Has, in how has it around. meaningfully or in a real way changed from when you first arrived as a teacher? Uh, or is it pretty yes much no. the same talented students that are just representing their time? I always know that I, I think um, it's not just that they're talented. It's the way they're talented. It's really, I, I don't know why I noticed this difference. Maybe it has something to do with the way that admissions thinks about things, but they, mm-hmm. they're, they're very um, interested in, they're very philosophical students. Like they're very interested in exploring ideas and kind of, you know, they're happy to like have whatever kind of crazy flight of fancy that you want. Now that kind of flight of, Flights of fancy can be, I think, quite important. And thinking about them precisely is, is is an interesting and important thing to do. And not everyone realizes that, but the students at Yale really get that. But I I think now that I've come back, maybe it's just me, but I like it even more. I'm yeah. older and I'm I'm more settled in who I am. I'm working on transformative experience, whereas it took me a long time to figure out how to express my ideas in a way that I found satisfying. So now I think I'm a better teacher and I'm you know, and able to communicate more effectively. I don't know. We touched on this, but you asked me to remind you to come back to it. I, I don't I think we finished the topic of psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm just really interested. I mean, psychedelic psychedelics have become, I think, uh, more in the public eye now. And, I, and my understanding is that, you know, there's getting to be a little bit more acceptable, maybe, um, how can I Look, it's a, it's yeah, becoming it's clinical disciplines around it. I mean, yes. it's getting, yes. they're, they're being thought of as potential therapeutic chemicals. Yes. Yes. And I, I'm just really interested and also puzzled by um, what happens when someone has a psychedelic experience. I mean, especially because here's the thing, here's the, okay. There's lots of really interesting things going on here, but the one thing I, that I'm really, really stuck on is like, if somebody will like, will have someone who's got depression. You, I'm sure you know about this. Someone can be, there are clinical results where people who have terminal illnesses and are depressed about that will have um, an experience like with um, uh, psychedelics and then afterwards report that they feel better about themselves. They understand their relationship to the world somehow better. Now, I don't understand this. And the reason I don't understand this is because they know they were on a drug. So it's, I mean, now some people might say, okay, I gained a kind of spiritual perspective and learned more about the world somehow by having this, uh, by chemically altering my, uh, my brain. But that's not, I mean, okay, fine. You could think that, but that's not what I think. But I, I, and I don't think that everyone thinks that. I think people would know, say, yeah, I know I altered my brain using chemicals and I had a psychedelic experience and it was beautiful and amazing. But then I came down and I still feel like it changed my understanding of the world. How does that work? Let me, um, let me give a, a cold clinical kind of, a, of an interpretation, which is that uh, dread and anxiety and phobia and and fear and all those things that you would be feeling if you were going towards end of life um, in a normal clinical setting response to exposure. It diminishes with exposure or extinguishes with exposure. And one of the things that I keep hearing about people that have this existential dread and then have a psychedelic experience is they clue into the 
dissolution of the self. So it's literally like they're exposed to the universe without a self. And guess what? There's something expansive and beautiful about it. And they are exposed to the non-self world sufficiently to learn to tolerate that that's something they could tolerate. But why do they think that this is real? Like, why do they think they've actually been exposed to a non-self world as opposed to getting hit on the head with a hammer? Like, why do they think that this experience reflects the nature of like the real dissolution of self? Because if you look at the neurobiology of certain psychedelics, that's the self regions, parietal self function tends to be what's shutting down. DMT is a classic example of really no complete lack of self function. And and they'll report that. So my hunch is it's something in that zone. Um, That's something about, again, it's a transformative experience. It's being a vampire. I'm a vampire now or I'm a zombie and the zombie without me, huh? It's kind of a beautiful thing. I, I can tolerate it and not be in dread of it. And, you know, again, we, we should talk to a, I don't, I'm not expert in this area. And I'm wondering if the practitioners would say, yeah, we have to expose them to it. It's expose people to it repeatedly in many cases before it finally goes away. Cause that would be the case in, in most phobic kinds of uh, phenomena. You're saying, okay, so I get that when people have a psychedelic experience, it feels to them as though their self or their ego has been dissolved. Yeah. And you said, oh, look, there are brain regions um, associated with those kinds associated of with that. So, so, so they're right about, or at least we can think there's some kind of correspondence claim that they seem like they're right. And, and I, I'm very cautious about, I understand sure, you know, sure, the experiences sure. versus neurobiology, whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. But let me, but, yes. But what I but 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 the problem is it's not that these people see the brain scans and think oh now yeah. I know so what yeah. I'm saying is like they have this experience but they know they were on a drug so why do they think that this experience reflects reality I mean maybe they are right about it maybe the brain the, the brain activity confirms you know, their you, guess you, you right? should maybe talk to somebody that really works in this area because maybe they maybe they know it's not reality per se but they can tolerate the experience. And so they don't dread what's coming so much. I mean, I'm, I'm not I sure. I haven't, talked yeah. To, yeah, I haven't talked to people who've been through this. It, it, I, I, I wouldn't know whether they would say I'm going to this place where I exist in the universe without me, mm-hmm. or if they would just say I experienced it, it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. So I'm not so afraid of it. It might be. I mean, much he, here's another, here's another idea. Maybe they are right, but not because, because, if we think of the self as just involving the nature of your experience, then they have to be right. Because if their experience suggests that their self dissolves, then they, they know that, you know, as a philosopher would say, a priori. You're, you're in your time. Okay. That was unfair. I was like, <laughs> uh, no, I, I was saying, I get it. And I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> no, I don't know. I mean, as a, as I, this is... I just go, I want to talk to those people that have been through this to see if we can get more. Yeah. We're, yeah. Just, we're just talking. Now we're just speculating purely. Yeah. Yeah, I just think it's you're super doing fascinating. Philosophy. I, I'm purely speculating. You're doing philosophy. <laughs> so I don't I'm wrong in this conversation anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's that's all. Again, that's that. To, to me, I just go back to the vampire example. That really helps me sort of immediately put it in focus. The vampire. Yeah, because um, 
that's an example of changing the self that you are. And also if you have, if it's a decision, then the thought is like, on what grounds are you going to make this decision if you can't project yourself into like the vampire perspective and you know that it's going to be different? And when I add in the example, I talk about, well, maybe you, know, you go and you talk to a whole bunch of vampires and they tell you, well, this is fabulous, right? And, and you think, okay, well, there, there's some evidence. But then you might think a little bit more about, well, if like becoming a vampire like rewires you Right. You, you would go, those vampires don't value the same things I do. They exactly. Drink blood. I, I, don't exactly. Want to be, I don't want to be that. Exactly. exactly. And, and, and there, you know, again, I, I go back to the clinical setting where we're, we're constantly telling people, don't worry about the outcome. Don't, don't cling to the outcome. Be open to the change. Right. And, and that's not an easy thing for people. It's not for, for not just the philosophical reasons. I think we're biologically resistant. That's right. Um, and I think that change is really quite shocking. I mean, I think when, when radical abrupt change comes, Mm -hmm. um, we, I feel like, um, we just kind of shut down sometimes. We don't always welcome it. It's not always a welcome experience. Uh, and and even though it may be, uh, very, very positive, it's still, yeah, it's still ambivalence. It's still ambivalence. And I think it's, it's, I think it's not just change. I think it's also uncertainty and unknown. So, um, so like it's, it's, um, we think about, we like to make plans, even if like, uh, even if you're no, you don't want to follow your plan, it's somehow comforting to know, well, this is the way that my day goes, or this is what's going to happen over the next couple of weeks. This Listen, is what I think I'll do. Right. I, I must tell you, uh, philosophically or otherwise, that has been my deepest challenge in this, uh, quarantine. I, I can't, I can't plan. I can't see, I can't, I don't know what's coming. I, I, it just drives me out of my mind. And so, yeah, exactly. I'm not a welcome transformation. I'll let you say the last word, then I got to wrap this up. Last thought. Oh, last thought is um, maybe the answer with transformative experience is to just be open to it. So to understand that there are things that you can't know. It it is the answer. It is the answer. And, And yet we will still resist. That's right. Perfectly natural response. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But to be, to be open to, tra- not even just, I, I mean, transformative experience has a little bit of drama attached to it. I, I even just transformation yes. and, and understand that yes. we resist it and, and to try to maybe, uh, you know, let, let me get a little philosophical at the end here, that, that transformation in the routine experience of life does not mean that your core values or your core self has to change. It will, it, it, I take it back. It has to change in some fundamental ways, but it, it's not as though, I don't know how to frame it. Not, not every, it's, it's not, you don't lose everything. Maybe it's not. You don't lose everything. Yeah. You don't lose everything. It's like, you can think of like, um, you know, there might be, um, there's a structure there, the structure of the self and, yeah. or those like, like legs of a table, you take away one leg and you replace it with a new one, but it doesn't yeah. mean that, you know, the rest of it is still there. And it's still the chair. Yeah. 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 It's still the, yeah. Little, the table or the letter or whatever. It, yeah. and, and we, we feel as though it's, it's massively, the other one's dead and this one, no, no, no. It, we just, we, we feel that way, but that's not necessarily how it works. And, and our core values typically travel with us. Yes, or at, least, at least some so, of them, right? So, yeah, I mean. Typically, and you can change them, but if you change them from a new perspective, it's usually because they needed some changing. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. You don't actually have to become a vampire to uh, 
to change. No, listen, you have Mary, to become a parent. <laughs> you don't have to become a parent, but uh, <laughs> you do become one. The data is not necessarily on your side. Mo- yeah, most parents right. still feel like, and, and again, just to hammer on the parent thing a little bit, still feel like it was something important, but it didn't necessarily make them happy. In fact, yes, all, it typically doesn't, right. at least not right. for many, many years of it. So, And there's a lot of things. Listen, this is back to the, the, the philosophy of a good life. A good life may not be a happy life, right? That's right. That's right. I mean, did Jesus have a good life? I think so. Was he happy? I don't think so. <laughs> Wasn't no, there's a certain happy? amount of, yeah. like, there's suffering involved in becoming a parent, but it, it's, it's still very meaningful. But, you know, it, it's more like the suffering in some sense doesn't matter <laughs> the way that it would have before it became a parent. I, I don't really get it, but from the it, parent perspective, yes, yeah. agreed, agreed. Yeah. Lori, thank you so much for coming. I appreciate it. Transformative experience of the book, lapaulpaul.org on Twitter at T Rex Project. What's that? Oh, Transformative Experience Project. <laughs> uh, okay. Project. And uh, really, I, I hope to talk to you again. Uh, you new books coming out or anything? Yeah, I have a new book that will be out in about a year and a half, and uh, with uh, Farrar, Stress, and Giroux. And uh, title TBA, but it's going to be on uh, some of the things actually we're talking about now on transformative experience and psychedelics and uh, kind of understanding the self and time. Maybe as as you ramp up to that, come back around and let's uh, do this again. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. See you all next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com.